If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. Today, we're on location again. This time, it's at the Baberham Research Campus to the south of Cambridge. And we're here for the On Helix event. We are. So it's a flagship event for One Nucleus. We'll hear more about One Nucleus, I'm sure, shortly from our, our first guest. It's a conference today, and there's also been a series of digital innovation workshops and online networking. So a whole host of different activities around this specific sector. So we're thrilled to be supporting One Nucleus with the podcast here today. It's going to be very much a biotech episode, so we're looking forward to that. And we're very much looking forward to exploring the collision of the life sciences sector and the tech sector in Cambridge. Indeed. And I, I arrived early and I've been up in the conference area and the networking space talking to some of the exhibitors and delegates. Caught up with Liz from Cambridge Pharma, Ziki from Mills and Reeves, actually catching up with them on all the things they're doing around investors in people. And also bumped into the effervescent Dave Graham. He's here talking to potential new clients about the Restore Harrow Green Laboratory Services here in Sawston. No doubt he's going to make loads of connections during the conference as well. So yeah, it was good to just go up there and actually see what's going on in the conference space. Our first guest is none other than Tony Jones, CEO of One Nuclear. So welcome, Tony. We're here today in the beautiful Babram Research Park, so I feel I should start by asking you why you located here, who else is on this park? One nucleus, I guess, as the name suggests, the, the nucleus being that hub of things. And if you look in terms of science parks around Cambridge, look at the rate they're growing. But actually, Babraham is one of those major, it's a major nucleus for life sciences and to the earlier stage as it, as it develops. So being on the same park as 60 or more companies all active in the space we're trying to support, then that makes perfect sense for us. Because as much as at a very basic level, One Nucleus is a membership group, it's a community. And, and it's much more than just, oh, you know, I pay my fee like going to the gym. This is a community that says, how do we help each other? And doing that here in one location as a hub makes it much easier to engage with the other locations and hubs in the region. Absolutely. Location is everything, isn't it? As many TV programs will, will attest to. So are there any companies, for example, that you could give a shout out to that are on here that you work with particularly? Well, I think what's really interesting about the campus here, you know, if you go back to when it was starting to be created and the government wanted to support this, you know, we've gone through decades of never having enough lab space, it feels. 
Now, when you started in the biotech sector, no one really knew what it was. And you had sheds at Babraham that could house the first companies like Cambridge Antibody Technology, which is a sort of a blast from the past, but a great trailblazer. And at that point, because no one really knew what that was, there was no space for it. Roll the clock forward 10 years. And then there's a clear demand for this space, and the government recognises that. So the, the government steps in and funds the creation of more space here at places like Babraham on the BBF SRC campus. And you go forward another 20 years to nearer to today. There still isn't enough lab space, but they're for different reasons now. Because now we do have the private sector stepping in. The government isn't having to do it because Cambridge is such a thriving cluster. No, it's, it's really interesting. And I think it's just, you know, it's yet another story of a, a campus a science park around um the region so and you can see there's cranes up you know there's obviously ongoing development so some things are getting through which is, is a good thing that's, that's really quite indicative what's being built now and if you look at what biomed reality is doing with babraham on the campus you know going from being a home of just small companies and a little innovation center if you like or innovation park now there's companies of all sizes so, Tony, you're the CEO of One Nucleus. Uh, would you be able to explain to the listeners what the organisation does and who your membership is? Yeah, sure. So, I say we're a not-for-profit membership group funded by our members rather than funded for economic development and, and government side. That's somebody else's role. Our job is to su support those members in being successful. Now, those members are all shapes and sizes. You know, they have everything from global pharma right the way down to new spin-out companies, those thinking about forming a spin-out company. But it's not just the, the R&D companies all in life science and finding new medicines and new diagnostics. It's the ecosystem around them. So you need great communication support to, to advise the companies. You need great legal advice and patent advice, great facilities. And I think that's what's often overlooked when we talk about the strengths of any cluster. We talk about the excellence in science. And of course, you need all that. You need great world-class innovation and you need entrepreneurs and investors. But, you know, they, they don't operate on their own. And it's how do you attract everything else to support them to succeed? And I think that's where you look at the way the Cambridge phenomenon, if you like, when we look back, that's why it's been a phenomenon. It's because everything else is here. When things start as small clusters, it's everybody knows everybody else. The right conversations happen. As that scales, that, you can't know everybody. It becomes way too diverse and too big. So then our job of One Nucleus as a membership group is to create an environment for deal flow meaning those conversations happen more than just leaving them to chance. Is there a geographic focus then in terms of the membership? We don't have a sort of restriction that says, you know, our members have to be in a particular geography. They can be, and we do have members from, you know, international as well as across the UK. But, you know, 70% of our members are Greater Cambridge, Greater London combined. Our job is to make sure that Cambridge is really, really well represented and influencing that agenda. I think having that focus is really good because you can really support your members um, rather than trying to be everything to yeah. everyone. And some things, some things happen best locally. You know, with the best will in the world, you can put a, a top-down structure or this is supposed to facilitate networking or those interactions. It comes down to trust. It comes down to frequency of contact. You're only one phone call away from getting to the right person rather than searching a database and maybe being four or five phone calls away. Being innovative and creating new products is really hard. Making it harder for reasons that don't need to be hard is, is a, a ludicrous way to go. That's really good as an intro, I think, for our listeners as well on um, what you do at One Nucleus. So thank you for that. Let's talk now about On Helix. We're here, we're recording with you and, and some of the speakers and attendees from today. What is the event? How often does it happen? Who comes? What's the objective of it? So One Nucleus does two major events a year. 
in the scale of ours, both of them getting 250 to 300 people together for a day. One is in London in December called Genesis. Today's is our annual event in Cambridge called On Helix. It's been going for seven, eight years now. And it's really a day to bring together all of those pushing the boundaries of where technology can take us in the life science space. So we have discussions like, well, you know, not just about what sort of space we should be building, what does the, the environment here need, but discussions around latest developments in genetic screening. Not just what technology can let you do, but how do you engage with the public? Other ones are developing medicines for children, more and more precise cancer drugs. So all of these things are moving forward all of the time in, in life sciences. And we can go to many conferences that are, are straight business development, they're one-to-one meetings pre-arranged, they're, they're full-on investor pitching, if you like. But as a, a cluster like Cambridge, it's really important sometimes for everyone to take a collective step back and say, well, where do we want to end up? What sort of society and how do we want to treat our citizens going forward? So next up, we have Deborah Lucarelli, CEO of Enhanced 3D Genomics with us. Deborah has a wealth of experience in technology development and a strong track record of successfully developing large-scale projects, both in academia and industry. So Deborah, we get to meet in person at last. Nice to meet you, Faze. Um, as just said, it was nice to finally put a face to several years of email exchange. Exactly. It's perfect. Perfect. So thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. As you've just alluded to, we've been watching your journey for quite a while. Um, so it's great to have you on here. So let's start with the business, if we can. So you spun out of the Babram Institute, um, which is obviously where we are today. And you've just moved out of the Milner Institute. So there's obviously a lot of things happening. So what I'd like to know, first of all, is how important have those two institutions been been for you? Um, I would say that the answer is vital, actually, for the two different reasons, and some of them may be overlapping. So the first one, the Bibram Institute, uh, um, is credibility, and is also the um, solidity of the science and the research that comes out of this institute. So when you start a business, it's very important that you have that credibility behind you proof of concept that has been validated, that the science is solid uh, and people want to see that. And then when we afterwards moved it to the Milner Institute, that was uh, likewise, you know, a similar concept. Uh, you want to be somewhere where people do great research, where there are uh, businesses that they are credible. Um, and as well, you want to have a team that is going to support you. Thanks, Deborah, for coming on. We're obviously aware of some of the big um, areas, functional areas in genomics, but only at a very high level. Uh, you know, we're not experts by any sense of the imagination. We're obviously aware of things like sequencing and, you know, data science and, and big data analysis and gene editing and AI. Um, you know, where does your company fit into all of that? Are you doing everything or have you got a particular focus? So we do um, utilize genomics. The, the clue is in the name of the company already. Um, and so we have a, a, a platform that allows us to profile um, genomes of people at scale. So we do sequencing just to do the first tick of what you just mentioned. 
Um, we then actually utilize this data that is generated out of it, which is quite large data that needs to be handled. Um, and so we have a lot of engineers. They don't like just the AI or machine learning concept. We do have data scientists. And what they do is to analyze the data and then they develop some very clever algorithms that in times uh, develop uh, and allows us to do predictions. So, um, and what do we do with this information? Because at the end of the day, what matters is the question that you're asking to your data and how do you translate your research or your data to something that is tangible to uh, a patient because that's the mission uh, the, the mission of our business uh, to make precision medicine available for every single patient so how do you then translate that amount of information to something that it could be beneficial and impact a person so then there is a lot of talking and thinking that goes behind you need to work in a specific area of therapeutics and we tend to position ourselves between the stratification development of biomarkers and as well as target development or co-development. So, um, and that's what comes from genetics somehow, because if you want to treat a disease, you need to understand the underlying causes of a disease. And that's what the starting point is. So we work with a variety of people. Could they be clinicians? Could they be pharma partners? Um, and that help us to co-develop and take this information further. So we work with people who have cell engineering uh, facility or product, but we also work with pharma partners who have um, targets or mm. compounds in some cases, or drugs that they need to be actually repositioned or they need to be um, further developed. So we identify ourselves as a functional genomics company. So that allows somehow to blend, you know, all these new technologies that they are really now ready and mature, but they need to be harvested and require a, a huge amount of expertise. And I think that's a great example mm. about why Cambridge is so exciting, because you're seeing that blur between traditional life sciences and maybe traditional tech. There's that real coming together. So maybe a two-part question there. What, what roughly would be the percentage you would say in the company of, say, scientists versus, you know, data scientists or, or you know, more technical roles? And then the second part of the question is like, how do you find recruitment? You know, it must be super competitive. Are your teams all local? Are you international? You know, how does that all work? Yeah, so I think this is one of the um, parts that we really um, take pride of, first of all, because um, I've been working in for different company and I've been wearing different hats. Um, I was at Oxford Nanopore, Cambridge Epigenetics, now Biomodal. I've learned a lot from those experiences. And the one thing I've learned is that you need a multi-skill team. So we have at the moment a 50-50 um, team in the sense that we have as many as data scientists, as many scientists in the lab at the moment. So we have a, a half and half uh, representative. We also do have um, five or six clinicians that they work with us. We do also work with statisticians and we work a lot and very extensively with developers in different areas. For a company that does genomic, Cambridge is the place to be. Um, this is where, you know, sequencing was discovered or, you know, f uh, first developed, uh, um, where 
there are so many AI companies and so many sequencing platforms that that's where you want to be. Um, and that facilitates because you not only are in an ecosystem with like-minded people, but also people like me in many ways, they want to work with visionary entrepreneur or with really skilled developer and they tend to want to be together. So we haven't struggled to recruit actually. So, um, and we often get to meet people who come in with new ideas and we thought, okay, this is the next concept that we're going to to go, to, to go for. So um, this is the good, a good place to be. And I think it's, you know, if you know what your proposition mm. is, you're going to attract mm. the, the right people all yeah. of the time, aren't you? I think I, I read last week an announcement from GrowthWorks that they were mm. part of mm. your decision to actually stay in Cambridge mm. for, for all of the, the yeah. above reasons. So you're definitely on an exciting journey. You know, the team's growing. What's, what's next for you? We are developing two or three proof of concept to demonstrate the value of 3D genomics within two specific areas. One is patient stratification for which clinician and drug developer are really interested in. And the other part is more um, target development. But rather than looking at the traditional method of target development, we bring in now this causality, this uh, uh, understanding of what underpins the genetics, and that can be utilized as what we call mechanism of actions for development of therapeutics. We are mature enough now that we can really, and we are really hoping to involve a couple of partners in the journey with us and establish some strong collaboration that could help us to lift some of our programs and take them forward. Who are those partners? Are you, see are you seeking them? Yeah, so we are seeking partners at the moment. So we have several pharma discussion, but we also are entertaining conversation with um, biotechs who have some very interesting, like we mentioned at the beginning, gene or cell therapies product. Um, but we're also speaking to the NHS and the university because obviously that's where the ideas or the large part of the ideas and needs is. So I think it's important to be able to collaborate and work with the entire ecosystems. Let's take a quick break from our coverage of On Helix for this week's Cambridge Tech News in partnership with Business Weekly. Geospatial software specialists, IQGeo, have won two multi-million pound contracts. The first is with a German customer with a value of more than two million euros over a three-year period. The second is also a three-year agreement with a US-based customer with a value of more than two million dollars, including IQGeo's cloud hosting services. Quartix Technologies, the vehicle tracking system specialist, saw a 14% growth in its subscription base in the first six months to the end of June, thanks to higher sales volumes in France and other European markets. Roboc, which applies AI-powered computer vision to logistics and industrial workplaces, has secured a $2.1 million Series A investment, taking its total funding to date to $4 million. Finally, Californian tech giant NVIDIA, whose $40 billion bid for Cambridge chip architect ARM in 2020 was rejected by competition authorities, is set to underpin ARM's projected September IPO on Wall Street, with an anchor investment running to hundreds of millions of dollars. Other tech titans in the US, including Apple and Microsoft and Intel, are also seeking to take major shares in the IPO. 
Be sure to listen to our recent interview with ARM co-founder Herman Hauser about his early interactions with Intel and how things could have turned out very differently. And now, back to On Helix. Our next guest is Parmin Dalali, partner at Apple Yard Lees. Parminder helps clients to protect their technolo- technological, it's easy for me to say, is this a technology podcast? <laughs> technological innovations. <laughs> Hi, Parminder, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So it's nice to have you on the podcast. I know you're a pro at doing podcasts, aren't you? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so your day job, as I've just said, is to help tech and life science companies to protect their innovations. So I'm just interested to find out from you what's happening in the marketplace at the moment. Are you seeing any specific trends or challenges out there? Um, It's a really interesting time actually um, at the moment for lots of life science and biotech companies because there's lots more technology out there that they are now using and harnessing, which means that uh, the speed of their discoveries, their innovation has really um, increased. Um, and that, you know, that very long life cycle um, or that research cycle that um, life science has had has been shortened, which means that lots of products can get to the market a lot faster, which benefits all of us. Some of these speed ups and advantages uh, have come from the pandemic. Um, you know, we saw there how quickly research happened and how quickly people collaborated. So there's lots of innovations on the sort of tech side, but also on the collaboration side, allowing people to share their research and and their um, findings, which helps to speed everything up, which is really interesting, I think. You know, we typically talk to more the software side of the city or, or maybe the hardware side of the city. What's, what do the IP requirements look like when you contrast those kind of two worlds, the life science world and the, the more the software side of tech? I guess there's that assumption that on life sciences, there's much more upfront R&D and a much longer time to market, even though you've also just said that is shortening. Is the IP kind of work similar, quite different? You know, what, what's your insights there? So I'm uh, a physicist by background uh, and my work is primarily on the software, the AI side or on on hardware. Speaking to my colleagues who work on the biotech, on the life sciences side, got a good understanding of what the differences are in terms of, you know, what, what IP actually matters to the different sectors. So on my side, um, so just looking at the software-y things, um, Research is really fast, you know, you just need some people with an idea and some computers. They can go from an idea to actual commercial product really quickly, which means that patents could be useful, but also that patents may not be that relevant um, because their products, their innovation could actually be uh, superseded or replaced really quickly. I mean, if we think about all of the technology or the software products that we use all the time, there's constantly upgrades and updates. And that's happening, obviously, all the time, you know, in, in the research world as well. So that means that lots of tech companies may be filing lots of patent applications or lots of patents for their, you know, various iterations um, of a particular product. And none of them may be that important individually. But if we look at the biotech and the life sciences side, there could be one thing that's super important that, you know, it's that multi-billion dollar product that's actually going to be on the market that takes years and years of research, investment and so on, but it's also going to be sold worldwide. Their one single patent could be very, very important. And also marketplace is also very contentious. 
So you tend to have, you know, battles over that one pattern, you know, people trying to knock it out and invalidate it to clear the way for themselves. So they're really different sort of fields, really, in terms of how they operate. And today, uh, obviously, we're here for the event and you're chairing a panel on AI, which is obviously a very hot topic. You've just touched on there that you've got the background in AI. Um, so what are you hoping to get from the panel? What do you see in terms of trends and, and the role of AI in genomics? There's lots of different ways that companies have been using AI and are interested in using AI to advance their research in the life sciences space. So there are companies who are using AI to sift through all of the publications that exist uh, in the world to help them to quickly analyze data, because otherwise that would require you know, thousands of humans many, many years you know, to actually sift through that. Um, so having a model which can quickly read through documents and not necessarily just, you know, academic papers, but also other sort of articles, research papers, data, patient data, records and things, anything that they can use to work out what the right direction is to go in in terms of their continuing research. That really helps them to speed up their process. That, that really helps in the drug discovery side and the drug design side. At the moment, the negative narrative around AI is very much fixated on generative AI and, you know, the ability to trust it and all those kinds of things. Whereas obviously AI is well established in fields like genomics. And as you say, like the, the kind of the ability to speed up and to have fundamental impact on the kinds of therapies that can be delivered is a really positive story that, you know, needs to be told. Yeah. I think there's a sort of obligation on lots of industries, including the life sciences industry, to get society on board with the fact that they are using these technologies. I know that um, many companies in this space already have a difficult challenge because, you know, there are lots of sort of people out there who don't trust what the pharmaceutical industry is doing. But then when you add AI into that, you know, that really sort of exacerbates things, I think. So I think we all have a duty and an obligation when we're working in these areas to explain to the public what the advantages are, what we're actually doing. And actually, that's also the way legislation is moving. So the big EU AI Act, which is going through uh, the process to actually becoming law in the EU, requires people who are using AI to make sure that they have a model that is explainable and it's transparent so people can see exactly what it's used for, how it works, what it was trained on and so on. So that that demystifies some things and tries to you know get, again, people uh, to trust these systems. Thanks so much for taking time out of the event today to join us. Very much appreciated. No problem at all. Thank you. So next up, we have Christoph Potemper, who's the CEO of Brain Cures, which is an award-winning data analytics uh, platform. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Right. So uh, at Brain Cures, we uh, use biological intelligence to de-risk and accelerate preclinical and clinical research. So we've uh, actually invested a lot of time in uh, understanding the biology of learning and memory, to then uh, be able to actually tease out uh, or build a discovery engine that's able to uh, shorten the drug discovery cycle by at least four years, eliminate preclinical failure and provide very high clinical success rates. In some of the materials that we read and that, that you sent through, um, you were saying that you're shortening this cycle 
without using some of those deep learning techniques that you would usually find with AI. So can you talk, without giving anything away, can you talk through how? How does that happen? So I, I think that's a key unique feature of uh, BrainCure's discovery engine is that we don't have to go through the deep learning artificial intelligence uh, process of actually discovering a pattern that then might be useful. Because uh, the reason why is because we've spent uh, some at least uh, four years in uncovering which are the genes responsible for learning and memory. We looked at three different time points in, in animal data and we were able to tease out 822 most important genes and then we were able to figure out who are the workers, managers and directors in that and then we can... Uh, essentially, uh, we have what we call a molecular GPS to what's relevant. So our final guest on today's episode is Mike Ward, who is the Global Head of Thought Leadership at Clarivate. Thank you for joining us. So Mike, you've been both a journalist and an analyst. Uh, you've been writing and commenting on the life science industry for more than 35 years. So you've got a deep understanding of, the, of what's happening in the market and the trends. So why don't we start with maybe a big picture question? What's going right for the life sciences uh, sector at the moment? And, and what are some of the challenges? So when one looks at the global life sciences sector, in recent years, because of COVID and the industry's response in terms of coming up with a vaccine very, very quickly, the life sciences sector has been in, in a pretty good place in terms of the way that you know, it's perceived by, by the public. And in fact, what we saw during the, the pandemic is we saw a huge amount of uh, investment pouring into the sector. What has actually happened in the past year or so is, you know, once it was all done, the kind of the gloss starts to sort of peel away. As what we've seen in other sort of, you know, markets, there's been a sort of a pullback. So all of a sudden, it's kind of got a little bit tougher for biotech companies to raise money on the, uh, the global capital markets. We talk an awful lot about technology. So I'm interested to know, are you seeing any specific other trends of, of what the life sciences pharmaceutical companies are doing? Artificial intelligence, machine learning, this is clearly uh, you know, something that a lot of the sort of pharmaceutical companies are clearly looking to sort of get, get a grip on. Because, of course, what, what we have is uh, we have an industry that is... Uh, you're full of you know, people who are experts in chemistry, molecular biology, uh, you know, et cetera, who are now having to also embrace data science, et cetera. So uh, one of the easiest ways of actually getting that is by through acquisitions or doing partnerships. So we're seeing a lot of the uh, pharmaceutical companies looking to bring uh, those skill sets uh, on board. You're participating in a panel that's looking at... Um geographical boundaries and collaboration and partnerships. Uh, do you just want to tell us a little bit about that panel and um, what your take is on, say, both national and international collaboration in life sciences? There is lots and lots of evidence that diversity within sort of your research groups and with collaborators actually is a boon for successful development of, of ideas. It's also true within, within sort of pharmaceutical space. So what we're actually sort of seeing is if you look at the global biopharma industry, it still speaks predominantly with an American accent. 
So that was a really interesting set of conversations. And now let's go back to Tony. So for the for the folks listening that are in life sciences, how do they get involved with One Nucleus? Just get in touch, actually. It's always good to talk. Not just the two conferences. We run probably two or three events a month on average of varying sizes and formats. So some will be more of a networking mixer, some is more of a round table expertise in one particular area. Like what do we do about this? How do we respond? You know, it's more than joining a gym, but it is a bit like joining a gym. You can pay the subscription. If you don't go and engage in it, you're not going to lose any weight or get fitter. So it is a two-way street. You know, we thrive when our members come to us and, and make input. And in return, we can help give them the visibility and engagement that they need to achieve their goals. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's a very busy day for you. Um, so we, we will let you go. And I do have to say a big shout out to Alicia, Natalie and Mona Lisa and all the team at One Nucleus because they've been amazing. Thank you. Yes, so thanks to all of our guests. It's been really interesting to hear more about tech within the life science biomed tech industry and all the trends and issues that are taking place. Next week, we're talking to Raj and Kavitha at Synaptics about their edtech. So tune in then and don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up to our monthly newsletter there too. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 